Our lives, in so many different ways in terms of, of our faith, tend to reflect a pendulum swinging from one end to the other, don't they? And one of those ways that, that we'll focus on this morning is the pendulum swings one way on this end. We, we focus on and rejoice in the fact that God takes care of every last little detail of my life. But of course, when the pendulum's on that, that end of things and we see how God does manage and address every care and concern that I have, then we forget the other side of that, that, that really God has a, the bigger picture in mind. Not just the little things in our day-to-day lives, but the eternal things, our salvation. So then the pendulum swings back over here and we rejoice that we have a Savior Jesus, but then we are also forgetful that We can also go to him with all of our little cares and concerns as well. This morning, we see and we rejoice in that that God actually delights in addressing both ends of that pendulum uh, or spectrum. That he delights in taking care of the little things as well as the big things. And so, it is as we pursue more of Jesus, he doesn't rob us of joy, as the world would have us believe, that more of Jesus doesn't result in, in a boring uninteresting life, but quite the opposite, because he delights in addressing the big and the small, that we have joy throughout our lives. And, and isn't it clear that, that he cares about the little things? You could focus just on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus addresses anxiety and worry, and he points to examples in nature and says, when's the last time you've even thought about the birds, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them? When's the last time you thought about taking care of the, the flowers, and yet look how beautifully they're dressed? If, if God takes care of all of those little details, isn't he also going to take care of and provide for you as well? Of course he is. And he demonstrates that as we see him at work in Cana as well. We note that that Jesus addresses what is relatively a a small, trivial thing in the grand scheme of things and shows how much he cares about the little details in people's lives. It's pretty pretty noteworthy that that this is the, the first miracle of Jesus and it's not something outstanding, not something that astounds necessarily to the degree that you might expect. It's not as if he suspended all of the heavenly bodies in orbit. It's not as if he intervened and rescued millions from some natural disaster or calamity. Quite the opposite, he simply changed water into wine. A big deal, to be sure, but not in the grand scale of all of the things that he could have done. And on top of that, there was nothing special about this wedding. This wasn't a joining of two political parties This wasn't some royal reception that he was a part of. No, not at all. This was a wedding taking place in a relatively no-name city, except the only reason we know it is because of this miracle, really, between a no-name bride and a no-name groom. And yet, what does Jesus do? He shows that he cares about the details, the little things in our lives, and delights in addressing those. But... God has not seen fit to record this account in Cana just to see that, just to see that that Jesus cares about the details. That's a part of it, but that's not all of it by any means. No, what was uncovered at this wedding at Cana was something much 
larger. And actually, John kind of gives us a little bit of a, a glimpse or a peek into really what was at work here. As you heard the gospel read, John chapter 2, listen to how John kind of wraps up the whole section. He explains in verse 11, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So that's what we're going to uncover a little bit more of this, this morning as we reflect on really John's description. He, he thus revealed or uncovered. Remember that word epiphany means to make known or to reveal. What exactly did Jesus reveal the wedding at Cana? We're not told a whole lot of the details. We don't know why Jesus was there, why Mary had anything to do with the wine. We don't know if it was a relative being married, an acquaintance, we don't know a lot of the details. We simply know that they ran out of wine. Now, culturally, it would have been an embarrassment, as I suppose it would today if, if you advertised a, a reception that was, was an open bar or unlimited beverage and you ran out. It would probably be a little bit of embarrassing, but, but much more so culturally in that day. But aside from that, we aren't simply told many details. Just that, they ran out of wine. Mary approaches Jesus, informs him of the issue, and then you might be a little bit caught off guard how he addresses Mary. He's not talking down to her in some derogatory way. He's not putting a woman in her place. But it does remind us, doesn't it, that as much as she was Jesus' earthly mother, there was a deeper relationship. He was also her Savior. And that was the, the more important one to keep in mind in that context. And then Jesus follows it up with another phrase that, that might leave us kind of wondering. You already heard it again as the gospel was read, but she gives him that charge and, and his response is, my time or hour has not yet come. What exactly did Jesus mean when he spoke those words to Mary? My time, my hour has not yet come. It wasn't his way of defying her request or denying or saying, I'm not going to deal with this because obviously we see he, he did it. The very next thing that he does is addresses the matter of running out of, of wine. So that wasn't it. In fact, it, it helps us because this phrase comes up a little bit later in John's Gospel. He, Jesus uses the same phrase later on in, in chapter 7. A different event is going on. Jesus at that point already had kind of garnered some popularity. People were, there was a little bit of buzz created around Jesus and his disciples were well aware of it and they were interested in kind of waving, riding that wave of popularity. So they were going to head into Jerusalem and wanted to make a, a big scene and wanted Jesus to come along with them. And his response at that point as well was, I'm going to stay behind. My time, my hour has not yet come. And then he did, after delaying a little while, kind of, he, he did go under the radar and join them in Jerusalem ultimately. But you see the same phrase, my time has not yet come. Well, to understand what Jesus really meant is to look to the end of the Gospels when we get into the last week of Jesus' life, when we especially focus on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. It's at that point that Jesus makes it clear that his time has come, the hour has come. And we know exactly what he's talking about, the time for his suffering and his death. Jesus was, was reminding his disciples at, at Cana and then in Jerusalem, not yet, not yet, this isn't really ultimately why I have come. And then he made it clear at the end of his, his life, 
This is why I've come. This is my time, my hour. And that didn't sit so well with the disciples because they saw when Jesus talked about this business of suffering and dying, that was, in their minds, kind of a roadblock to the greater purpose they had in mind for Jesus, not so much a reason for his actual coming. And to some degree, maybe, maybe we understand it because the longer they were with Jesus throughout his ministry, what had they seen him doing? addressing all of the relatively trivial little details in people's lives. He would heal the sick. He would cast out demons. Again, not that these are small things, but in the grand scheme of eternity, these are our temporary things that Jesus addressed. But he did address them, and they were used to seeing that. They were used to seeing Jesus deal with symptoms, not the cause of all of those problems. The sickness the sin, the demon possession, death, all of the things that Jesus had spent much of his ministry healing and addressing, those were simply symptoms of the bigger cause, sin. And that was why Jesus had come. Not just to change water into wine, but far more importantly, to turn sinners into saints. And if we lose focus of that, we run the risk of being very disappointed in Jesus. When we have that tunnel vision or when the pendulum remains only on the one end for far too long and we see Jesus as being the one to go to to fix my problems, when we pursue Jesus to deal with the relatively little things in our lives, if that's all we see him as, be ready to be disappointed to be disappointed because there are going to be times in our lives and and we've all experienced it where God may choose not to fix or address or correct or heal. There might be times where after a long bout with sickness and we pray for healing, God, instead of healing, gives us an even worse diagnosis. There may be times where somebody has hurt or wounded us in the past and and we pray for God to deliver that only to see that person hurt us again in the future as if feeling like God is standing idly by and doing nothing about it. There might be a season of of unemployment that we thought was only going to last a, a few weeks, but then the Lord allows it to go months or maybe longer. And if we only see Jesus for fixing or addressing the little things in our lives, we're going to be then disappointed when he has a different answer for our prayers. We're also going to be disappointed in another realm. And when we focus on just pursuing Jesus to fix those things, we, we run the risk of losing sight of the bigger picture. That Jesus didn't just come for the little stuff. It's kind of like uh, maybe as a child or if you have children uh, of your own, and nowadays it could be any number of screens, but as television screens get get larger and and a little kid is mere inches away from the screen and and you have to tell them to to step back, well, not only because it's not great for their eyes, but if they're that close to a screen or bringing the screen to their faces that close, they can only see a small portion of what's on the screen. They don't get the whole picture. Or in an art gallery, the same way. If you're too close to a work of art that takes up the whole wall, you only see one little portion of it. You don't see the bigger picture. And when we focus on Jesus only to fix the little things, we run the risk of being disappointed or losing sight of the fact that he came for something much, much larger than that. And what exactly was that? 
Jesus made clear at Cana as, as his glory was uncovered. Why did Jesus spend all of this time in his ministry to draw attention to himself, to see the bigger picture? There was more to it. Again, he wanted to see that he wasn't just interested in dealing in parties or receptions that run out of wine, but more interested in turning sinners into saints. And that was what he came to do. When you think of Jesus' kindness and love and compassion throughout his ministry, all of the, the miracles that he performed, they served a purpose. John even tells us he uses the word, a sign. Now, if, if you are a, a member here at Shepherd of the Hills, you know right where the restrooms are. You don't need a sign to tell you. And, and you've probably driven here enough times that you don't even really need the street signs. You probably can get here on autopilot in the morning. But for somebody that hasn't been, signs are a pretty helpful thing. They point to something. They give you direction. They give you guidance. So throughout Jesus' life in this wedding at Cana was one more example. These miraculous signs pointed to Jesus much more than just somebody to say, I'm not like other prophets, but that he came for a much more significant purpose. He came to save. He came to redeem. He came to do what we could not do on our own. That's the bigger picture of why Jesus came. Think about what that means then in terms of looking to Jesus for, for the big things and the little things. It means that I don't have to worry about what's on my schedule tomorrow or this week in the grand scheme of things. Because no matter how they play out, I have a Savior who came to address not just the symptoms, but the cause itself, my sin. I have a Savior who came to, to remove, to address, and to take away and forgive my sin. When Jesus performed this miracle at the wedding at Cana, he was drawing attention to himself so that people would see his loving kindness and compassion. And when they see that, they would see his greater purpose. You might remember one of the readings last Sunday that spelled out very clearly for us why, why did Jesus take the time to exercise love and compassion to others? Why did he show kindness to them? To draw them to him, but not just to be impressed by what a good guy he was. Paul wrote to Titus, and it was one of our readings from last Sunday, as I mentioned, in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. His kindness and his love revealed a much bigger part of God's plan for us, that he came to save, not just to impress or to wow, but to save and to wash away our sins by his mercy, and by his mercy alone. You know, an interesting detail about the, the account of the wedding at Cana. You notice the jars that Jesus used when he had the servants fill them up? Those were jars that were used for ceremonial washing. And what did ceremonial washing do? It wasn't as if back in that day it, it actually disinfected or cleansed anything. It was ceremonial. It symbolized something. The irony of Jesus using ceremonial jars is that because of what Jesus came to do, which was much more than just change water into wine, because of what he came to do to wash away sins, ceremonial jars would never again be needed. And along with them, any works of righteousness on our part. 
any washing, any, any obedience, any achievements, anything that we might think is necessary to measure up before God, Jesus came to do away with. Jesus came to fulfill for us, to meet those requirements, to be the Savior who delights not just in the little things, but the big things as well. And so that's reason for us to, to look for more of Jesus, not less in our lives, because he will take care of the little things. But the more we see that, we will also appreciate more deeply that he took care of the biggest thing, our sins, and has washed those away as well, so that there is never any amount or measure of ceremonial washing or anything that we need to do or go through to be right with him. He has saved us purely by his mercy. So when that pendulum swings too far this way and we are only focused on and, and seeing Jesus as, as Mr. Fix-It to address my day-to-day problems, let that pendulum swing the other way and rejoice that Jesus came for more than that, that he came to address the, the biggest problem that any of us have, a problem that no longer remains between God and men because of what he did. See him for the big things and you will appreciate that he also came to address the little things. But if you see him only for the little things, then you run the risk of, of seeing the big picture that he came for the big stuff as well, your salvation. So with confidence then rejoice that you have a good and gracious God who doesn't just delight in addressing the small things in your life, but delights in addressing the big things, indeed everything as well. Amen.